Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of our podcast, a Thursday edition of Kavita is not here with us this week, but we are nonetheless excited to have as guests with us our friend Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, Norm? I am uh, doing well on a very nice day here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's very pleasant, kind of spring-like here in New York City as well. And uh, another friend of ours, Allison Gill, AG from The Daily Beans and the Muller She Wrote podcast. How are you doing today, Allison? I'm doing well, although it's an unseasonably cold 56 degrees in San Diego. Oh, boy. Well, I would say I can muster no sympathy for anybody who has to deal with the weather in San Diego. There's been a lot of news in the past week about what kind of texts and other information had been given by Mark Meadows to the January 6th commission. And it has given us a better picture, I think, of some of the interaction between the the White House and the White House Chief of Staff and others involved in helping to plan or respond to the events of the 6th. And once again, it, you know, it causes me, I think, you know, you could be a podcast host these days and simply every week say, well, is this finally the tipping point? Are we finally close to a new, you know, getting some accountability? So that's going to be one of our topics a little bit later. Well, I'd also like to talk a bit about the sudden shift we seem to have had with regard to voting rights and whether that's a meaningful thing. But first of all, Norm, is this a tipping point? We've looked for tipping points in the past, and the question is twofold. The first is, are we reaching a point where the damning evidence of direct involvement in the attempt to overturn a legitimate election is sufficient that we can say with no hesitation that Donald Trump, with a 
a phalanx of enablers actively tried to use violence against the Capitol to intimidate Vice President Mike Pence, and then subsequently acted in multiple ways to try to intimidate election officials and others, inciting more riots to overturn the results of the election. The answer to that question is, yes, we are at a point now, I think, with all of the evidence we've gotten from Mark Meadows, whatever else we haven't gotten will be very clearly more damning, that that was the case. The second question is whether it's a tipping point in terms of actions that will be taken to deal with it. And here, it's a more muddy picture, David. The fact is, we still don't know, just to pick one example, whether the Justice Department, having gotten a criminal referral or contempt of Congress against Mark Meadows, will act. And if they don't act in the Justice Department, it's not going to make a huge difference, I think, in terms of that first tipping point. And we're going to get a lot more evidence. And it's pretty clear that the select committee already has plenty that they haven't told us. But it'll be a sign that actually bringing people to the bar of justice for sedition may be a greater distance away. I want to make one other point, which I'm sure we can come back to. We got from Mark Meadows all of these texts. And what struck me as much as anything It's not so much the texts from members of Congress, although those texts reveal one thing, which is a lot of members who were saying it wasn't serious, it was a tourist event, and it was Antifa and had nothing to do with the president. They were writing to the president to tell him to put a stop to this, which meant they knew that he was the one who started it. But the second is the utter chicanery the cynical disingenuousness of Fox hosts. I won't call it Fox News because it's not news. These are people who did exactly the same thing. Bring this to a halt, Mr. President, meaning we know you can do it, and then went out afterwards and said it had nothing to do with their people. It was Antifa and others who were doing it. The lying, the direct complicity of Fox News quote, unquote, news hosts is something we knew about, but it's still breathtaking. As far as the tipping point, something very interesting happened over the weekend. Last Friday, a Trump appointed judge named Dabney Friedrich ruled in a couple of in one case for the the boots on the ground insurrectionists that the Department of Justice could use a statute obstructing an official proceeding, which carries a max 20 year prison sentence. The defendants were arguing that it wasn't an official proceeding because it wasn't judicial. The judge said, no, it, the certification of the electoral vote is, a, is an official proceeding. And right after that ruling came down, Liz Cheney, co-chair of the 1-6 committee, started using language from that particular statute. It's 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, saying anyone who corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding. She said Congress's official proceeding. She's using that in reference to to what Donald Trump did through action or inaction. And that is uh, kind of along the lines of seditious conspiracy, but a little easier to prove. And so it carries a max 20-year sentence, unlike 18 U.S. Code 1505, obstruction of Congress, which only carries a max five-year sentence. And I thought that that was very interesting. She mentioned it during 
the committee hearing to refer Mark Meadows for criminal contempt, and she mentioned it again on the full House floor. Another thing as well that dawned on. If, can I can I just interject because I I think you said this, but I just want to make clear when she mentioned it on the House floor, she mentioned it with respect to Donald Trump. Correct. After all the texts that Mark Meadows received, and particularly I think the reply Mark Meadows gave, saying "I'm pushing this hard," I agree. When Donald Trump Jr. texted him and said, "You've got to stop this s asap." so on and so forth, meaning that he indicated he had been pushing Trump to to do something. And that if that culpability there of action or inaction to corruptly impede an official proceeding exists, that's criminal behavior. So I thought it was interesting that criminal prosecutorial words were coming out of the mouth of somebody in Congress doing a congressional investigation. But the second thing that dawned on me was back when um, everybody spent a year or two or three harping on Hillary's emails. And I texted Pete Strzok and I said, what was it that kicked off the investigation into Hillary's emails? What prompted it? And when Hillary turned over it, what happened was Hillary had to turn over all of her stuff to the Benghazi committee investigating what happened in Benghazi in Congress. And the inspector general for the intelligence community at the time went through all of those documents and made the, the criminal referral to the FBI. And that's when the FBI started investigating. Of course, they found no wrongdoing. So I have to wonder if the FBI is doing the same thing with all of the materials handed over to the 1-6 committee and making criminal referrals. I, I was thinking since Attorney General Garland had said that he told Congress that he would take the DOJ inspector general's recommendation for looking in, into former DOJ officials with regards to the attempted coup. And he he swore under oath he would take those recommendations. I thought maybe the department was trying to insulate themselves from politicization by waiting for congressional referrals for criminal behavior or waiting for inspector general DOJ referrals for criminal behavior. But these could come from other agencies. It's not just limited to those two things. And, and to, to think that the IG in the intelligence community may be going through all these materials, looking for classified documents, looking through them to to understand what can be released to the public, what needs to be redacted, because that's generally what you do. You go through the intelligence community, the ICIG or the, the IC or the ODNI to find out what you can release to the public and what you can't, what might be classified information. But if any crimes are found, they are duty bound to refer those to the Department of Justice. So these referrals can come from many different places. But do we know if they've been referred to the FBI, do we know if the FBI is criminally investigating these text messages and, and documents? And then finally, if this is what he handed over and was just not in signal, you know, because there's a lot of text saying, check your signal. What is it we don't know? What is worse than what we've seen? Well, I think those are interesting signs. I noticed, Norm, when you were talking about this, that you know, you sort of drew a distinction between what the public is aware of and what there is evident proof of with regard to these actions. And you felt we were a tipping point in, in res- with respect to that. But in terms of action, not so much. Does what AG describes give you a sense of greater optimism on this regard? I mean, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of January 6th. and as of yet, there's no evidence that any one of the planners is going to be held accountable. 
So, you know, as AG was talking and saying that uh, we have this one part of the code that's 15 years and the other is five years, I was thinking, look, I'm reasonable. I'll compromise. Give them five years in the slammer. Uh, I'll settle for that. But I'm not confident that we're going to see a lot of these people brought to the bar of justice. And let's keep in mind, David, that we've had actions taken by members of Congress that are breathtakingly horrible, that are deserving of censure and of removal from office. And we haven't had any anything done. And the fundamental reality here is that, of course, after a violent insurrection where members of Congress lives were on the line, later that day, after they repaired just enough of the trashing of the Capitol to bring Congress back, two thirds of House Republicans still voted that the election was illegitimate. And none of them, except for the two who are the stalwarts we have here, Adam Kinsinger and Liz Cheney on the 1-6 committee, have been willing to do or say anything that would suggest that they see this as bad. And of course, they were the only two who voted for uh, the contempt citation against Mark Meadows when he's refused to come in and testify. It would be one thing if he came and either pled the fifth or refused to answer based on executive privilege, and then you could take that to a different venue. But as Liz Cheney did, and I thought her presentation on the House floor was nothing short of brilliant, it was what a great prosecutor would do. Every element that they've tried to get of additional information for Mark Meadows, he has already indicated is not protected by executive privilege. So we've got all of that, and I'm just not at all clear that we're going to have these people brought to the bar of justice. But there's one other larger point we have to make here, too. This was not the end of it, even if we see people brought to trial or indicted at least. They're in open, broad daylight planning to do it again in 2024 and make sure they don't make the same mistakes that they made trusting some of their own people like Brad Raffensperger and election officials in Arizona to cave and and help them overturn the election. They're going to make sure that they handle it differently this time. And whether we're able to thwart the next one is in, of course, many ways more important than what we do to hold accountable those who tried to bring about the first one. A.G., it's often commented that the Congress doesn't have the power to prosecute because it doesn't. It can only refer to the DOJ on which we must wait because it is slow moving and inscrutable. We also know that the likely lifespan of the January 6th commission is until there is a new Congress, because if the Republicans win, they will kill it instantly. So there's about a year there. Those are the limitations on Congress. There's one thing that is not as often commented on in this case, and that is what the Congress does have one power, and that is to kick out people who do bad stuff. And one of the things that we seem to be heading towards is the revelations about the texts and the behavior of some members of Congress. And I heard Adam Schiff on the television the other day saying, well, we're not going to release the names in the near future because it may hinder our investigation. But the chairman of the 
January 6th Commission Thompson has indicated that they will release them in January. And it strikes me that at some point in January, we are going to enter a new phase of this, where there's going to be a list of Republican members of Congress, and we're going to know what they did and what they said. And some of what they did and said may be seditious or complicit. And in the event that it is, isn't it going to be very hard for Demo- for, for the Congress and where there is a Democratic majority and it only requires a simple majority to let these people stay where they are? Yeah, I've been trying to do some research and maybe Norman can expand on this a little bit more about the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Right. That you, you can't serve in Congress if you try to overthrow the government, basically if you participate in any seditious behavior. And so what that looks like, I imagine much like utilization of inherent contempt in Congress, you would have to pass some sort of resolution outlining constitutional due process for how to carry that out, which is why they haven't used inherent contempt, at least according to Daniel Goldman, one of the impeachment prosecutors, that you you need and Ted Lieu has written up a bill, by the way, to put this into practice, inherent contempt, Congress's inherent contempt in, into practice. I imagine there must be something similar to enforcing the Section three of the 14th Amendment. But I, I honestly haven't found that answer yet. But I do echo Norman's concerns about whether or not people would be brought to the bar of justice, because what happened in the Mueller investigation with regards to Trump, Russia and Mueller trying to or investigating conspiracy, criminal conspiracy, he wasn't able to get enough evidence to prove that because of all of the obstruction and the fake cooperation and the the pleading the fifth and all the lying, all the 1001 charges. And that all happened behind closed doors when we, we didn't know about it. Now it's happening right out in front in the public. And so my concern is, is much like Mueller wasn't able to prove conspiracy uh, in that particular case, uh, that I think that because of all the obstruction and lies and pleading the fifth and cooperation, cooper fake, fake it, as uh, as the sisters-in-law put it, they might have a, a difficult time proving obstruction of an official proceeding or seditious conspiracy or plot to overthrow the government, et cetera. That's my concern with, that I share with Norman. I don't know how to overcome that. And then another concern I have is that we're applying, the Department of Justice can only apply the law as it's written. And so they're applying the law to things like shaking down a furniture store, a mob boss shaking down a furniture store, applying the same laws that that you would to that, to a, a seditious conspiracy plot to overthrow the government, which says to me that there's some reform needed. I don't know that they can be treated the same. A lot of the boots on the ground folks, the early ones, at least the early cooperators were being charged with the same thing you would get charged with if you were caught smoking weed at the Vietnam Memorial. And so it's that's sort of, I think, what could or might potentially imperil this kind of investigation. But I will say I find it very hard to believe that the FBI isn't already investigating a lot of these crimes. And if they aren't, why not? They have sufficient factual predication to open an investigation. You don't necessarily need an ICIG referral or a congressional referral 
or a DOJIG referral to start investigating if the crime is right there out in the open. You should be able to just open an investigation. And it would be, I think, a dereliction of their duty if they have it. But I am concerned. I do share Norman's concerns. I, I do have hope. I think we're in a much better position than we were when Barr was attorney general. <laughs> but the, the law is, is the law. And I'm concerned that they may not be able to to have the uh, proper evidence for that, you know, for federal criminal procedure, you have to be able to obtain and maintain a conviction. And I don't know that that because of all of the non-cooperation and lying and pleading the fifth that's happening, that they'll be able to reach that that threshold. So, Norm, you know a lot about the Congress. What's the bar for kicking out people? And, you know, do you see this evidence pointing in that direction? Well, for expulsion, it requires two thirds. And so we will not see any member expelled. When you have a Republican leader like Kevin McCarthy, who only wants to punish Liz Cheney and not the uh, real villains and miscreants in his own ranks. Or who may be one of them. Yeah. Other than two will actually go along with anything of that sort. AG is right that It's a different standard ostensibly for the 14th Amendment, but we do not have any mechanism for removing people from office other than the expulsion. Now, the interesting question there is, first, whether somebody could bring a lawsuit under the 14th Amendment and who would have standing? That's uh, a tricky question, but I would think that any constituent of a member of Congress would have standing to bring a lawsuit saying my member of Congress tried to overthrow the government and that member should not be serving in office. At the same time, remember, this is a standard that applies to Donald Trump. And that means he cannot run for any public office. So we have a lot of things out there, but I'm skeptical that much of it works. Now, there's another twist to this, which is the uh, committee is getting phone records for members of Congress. And with those phone records, which I would hope will include texts, and frankly, I would like to see the FBI, once we have evidence and we know which members were sending these texts to Mark Meadows, would interview some of them and see if they're going to lie about it. And of course, they would have a greater ability to get access to some of these things. But there's one thing we know, David, and that is that in the Capitol, There are a large number of hideaway offices for individual members and for leaders that do not have any markings on them. You know, if you want to go to the office of the Speaker of the House or the majority leader, there's a suite of offices and signs that say offices of the Speaker. For these hideaway offices, there are no signs. And we know that some of these violent intruders into the Capitol made a beeline to particular offices. Somebody inside told them where those offices were. And if we know in the criminal proceedings which of these miscreants went to those offices, we should be able to find in text messages and elsewhere who told them. We know that Marjorie Taylor Greene and others did tours of the Capitol the day before had maps of the Capitol that they were not supposed to do. And we may find out that members of Congress were actively engaged in trying to let people break into offices to do harm or kill 
members of Congress they did not like. If you can't expel somebody if you find out that evidence, and you can't bring charges against them, then we have no hope left anyhow. And let's face it, we are not dealing with a traditional party in any way, shape, or form with the Republicans. It is entirely a cult now, and they're going to go along with the cult leaders. It is like a mob where nobody is going to break from the mob bosses, and we're going to have to have outside forces that intervene. And if this is not a call to action for the attorney general, it's hard to say what else would be. Yeah, and and Norman, they also made a beeline right for windows and doors, a handful of windows and doors that had not been fortified in the upgrade that were in an alcove and hidden. They passed a ton of windows that they could have made attempts at, went right for those vulnerable windows. Somebody knew about those vulnerable windows. I know that one of them is, is Paul Irving who, you know, was the, I think, the uh, was he the House Sergeant in Arms? He was also one who refused to, a uh, day before, declare a national emergency to the Capitol Police Board when Sund was pushing for it. He also ignored multiple phone calls to call out the National Guard. And so, I mean, there's a lot there. And, but I agree with you 100%. If we aren't able to prosecute this, then there's something wrong with the laws. And there are, I think you hit on another point, AG, which is it's not just members we're talking about here. There were other very likely inside actors, maybe people in the architect of the Capitol's office, which really has access to a lot of this stuff. The sergeants at arms, because of, of course, in the aftermath of 9-11, know what is secure and what isn't in the Capitol. There are plenty of people inside who could have been involved. And one would hope that we could work backward from those who we know went to these particular vulnerable spots and see what communications they had with whom. And then we need to really throw the book at people who did this sort of thing. I mean, this is accessory to attempted murder. Well, these are good points. And, uh, you know, picking up on what AG said, if you can't prosecute for this, there's something wrong with the laws or something wrong with the people who are enforcing the laws. This is where we normally take a a, a very brief break in our programming here. It allows the folks who are uh, not members and listening for free for us to say bye-bye to you. And hopefully you'll come back in ensuing weeks. And in fact, over the next couple of weeks, we've got a bunch of special broadcasts that are focused on looking back at 2021 and looking ahead at 2022, both in terms of you know, issues like these, domestic issues, political issues, as well as foreign policy issues and health and science issues. We'll have a bunch of special guests, and we hope that all of you who are out there listening will join us for those. For the rest of you who are our members, we say thank you and stand by. We'll be back in one moment. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current LA Times legal affairs columnist, and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace. 
to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalism, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.